Opportunities really opened up for women in non-traditional careers like the FBI in the 1970s, after the passage of the Equal Employment Opportunity Act. In its modern era, women were hired to work as FBI agents in 1972 after the death of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Mr. Hoover strongly resisted allowing women to be agents. I was among the first 500 women agents. I qualified under a program that combined my degrees and work experience, and, after a three-year wait, I was hired in 1982. The process was lengthy and intimidating with testing, interviews, a background investigation, and a strong emphasis on fitness and shooting proficiency. I understood the job would require physical and mental toughness, attention to detail, long hours, and the willingness to use deadly force if necessary. Being an FBI agent is not a career for everyone. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason McCarthy, here with Emily. Our guest today is Ellen Glasser, recently re-elected as mayor of Atlantic Beach, Florida, just north of us here at headquarters. With over 39 years in public service, she's a retired FBI special agent of 24 years, past president of a national association of FBI agents, and former faculty member at the University of North Florida in criminal justice. She's also a Navy wife, mom of four, and grandmother. Mayor Glasser, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Likewise. So before we get to, you know, how you became the the inspiration for Clarice in Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> right? <laughs> Wanted to get to how you grew up, you know, what drove you to service influence of your, your family and, and other mentors? Sure. Um, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I was uh, one of many children uh, to my father, who was a, a doctor in the community and a stay-at-home mom. We were all uh, taught from a very early age that we needed uh, to get a good education and that we were expected to basically be independent and support ourselves. So uh, the first five children from my parents were girls. And then uh, the, the last one was a boy. God bless your um, father. And so, uh, yeah, he kept going until he had that and son. And your mother. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, yes, also had two sets of twins, which made it even, uh, you know, more, more challenging. Um, but. We often would joke about the fact that he really raised six sons, um, and uh, we really didn't see any barriers. Even though this was before the time of the Equal Opportunity Act, uh, we really didn't didn't see any barriers. We were taught to believe we could be whatever we wanted to be, and that was really empowering as a child. Um, and so uh, I I have an extraordinary set of siblings who have all achieved a lot of great things in their their professional and personal lives. And I do, I give, I give credit to both of my parents, but because I was uh, a woman uh, tackling careers in non-traditional occupations, I really give a tremendous amount of credit to my father uh, for uh, making me believe at an early age that I could do whatever I wanted. So didn't you describe him as someone who wasn't exactly a crusader for equal rights though? No, that's right. He was not uh, he was not about women's equality. But it's interesting what happens in that personal setting in a family environment when a father has a daughter or a granddaughter and realizes that, you know, my daughter, my granddaughter can do these things. Maybe not all the rest of the women can, but my daughter can do it. And I think that that really has been sort of a game changer for this generation. And one of the reasons why women have started to to really succeed in occupations that they didn't really consider. Most of the early women in the FBI that were hired were nurses or teachers. 
and they just didn't find that those were the careers that they really wanted. There's nothing against them, um, but they they wanted to do the same things that the guys did. And uh, and when I actually talked to many of them, I found that we had similarities and that their fathers really raised them to be outdoor girls, um, girls who would tackle anything. And so, yeah, my father, uh, he came around <laughs> um, to, to believing that women could do anything. Um, but it was more about that personal relationship between father and daughter. So how did that work? Like, how did his heart change? I mean, I, I understand, you know, you have daughters and like, you guys seem to be the types who are pushing the envelope, right? Mm -hmm. But is it just a cultural generational thing where he grew up around traditional, traditional roles in, in the family and it took the kids to kind of bring that out of him? Or how did that, how did that feel to you even? Well, I, I don't know that I, I was really uh, thinking about it at the time, but I think it's a mashup of both things. Um, sort of the men of that generation were used to having their wives waiting with the martini when they got home and have, having dinner on the table and taking care of their their man. And then, and, and things have just changed uh, just because I think we've seen that women are uh, very capable in, in a myriad of settings uh, professionally. So I think that along with just the generational changes, what was happening legislatively, um, women uh, getting in positions where they hadn't been before, I think it all worked together. Uh, but but for us, for me and my family, it was really that relationship with my dad, knowing that if I wanted to be a police officer or an FBI agent, his daughter could do it. Whether the rest could, I don't know, but his daughter could do it. And that that was the starting point. And, and so what was mom like? My mother was was uh, really wonderful. I, I my parents are deceased now. I would uh, love to think that they could look down on us, my my sisters and my brother, and be really proud of the things that we've accomplished. I, I you know I'm not one to look backwards, but you know my mother would probably like a redo um, because she was really a larger than life personality, and uh, just like my father taught taught his girls. I mean. I could tell my mother she could be whatever she wanted to be because she was quite quite a a big larger than life person and um but she spent most of her life just taking care of the kids and uh uh I would I would have loved to see her try some other things. Well first off that many it's no small feat with one or two or three or four mm -hmm. or keep going right? Right. So is this, is this again, one of those situations where, I mean, you're, you're cut from the same cloth. Like you're, it seems like the apple didn't fall far from the tree and it's just where society just wasn't in a place where your mother could go be a, a special agent at, at the FBI or, you know, couldn't go get a PhD and go be a, a professor and, you know, couldn't run for mayor and all those things. Is that just kind of like sacrifice of, of the times like that? Perhaps. I mean, if, if she had not been in a, a, a loving family relationship with her husband, she might have been forced to do other things. But she but she wasn't. I mean, I want to say that, you know, women today, make no mistake, you really can't do it all. There are sacrifices with every choice that you make. And so one of the things that uh, back in, in her day is you made a choice to be uh, a parent and that was your primary thing. And now women are multitasking and doing more than one thing. There's a sacrifice with that. And I'm sure that any working mother and people who have great demands in their careers feel it every day because um, 
you don't bring that with you to work and talk about, oh, how hard it is to be a working mom. As in my current role as mayor and when I was a professor at, at the local university, my kids were grown. Um, I had the ability to do that then, but you have to make choices. Um, so for me, um, there, were, there were always trade-offs um, and my life's a lot more manageable now than it was then, but I can't imagine if my mother had tried to do something else with six children at home. You know, the kids, they, they need their parents. Um, and, you know, my dad was working. And so that was a choice she made. I don't think she um, ever regretted it, but it would have been interesting to see what she might have done um, in today's climate. Yeah, absolutely. I lived this life as well as a, as a working mom. And I often think that part of it is that your mother was there at home you know, for you and your siblings and supporting, supportive of, of all your endeavors. And, you know, I wonder sometimes as working, am I leaving something on the table for my kids? And, and I think that's this balance that we all struggle with, you know, wanting to have our own identity and, and, and also wanting to be there for them. So, I so those traditional gender roles are still there and mom guilt is a real thing. <laughs> um, but I, I think that the key point for me was just really paying close attention to what was happening in my kids' lives. One of my sisters, a very accomplished attorney, she, she basically quit her job because she realized that she needed to be at home with her, with her, with her kids. And fortunately for me, um, my kids pretty much stayed on track. Um, they're not perfect. There are things that I could have definitely done better. But, but at the end of the day, I feel like um, having me role model what you could do and what was possible uh, today was very empowering for them, especially my daughters. So again, there's a trade-off with everything. And you, you know, you don't have a crystal ball to figure it out ahead of time, but you just have to stay on top of it. So uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my, my kids, our family unit is very tight and there's, there's not um, any resentment for me spending so much time outside of the home when they were really young. Uh, but I do, I do see the vestiges of, of the actions that I took. One example um, that comes to mind is I was, people always ask me if I was ever in a shootout in the FBI. And the answer is yes, I was. And ironically, it was, it was the Thanksgiving holiday back in 1996. And I remember what the toll that was that it took on my kids. And, um, you know, none of them have gone into law enforcement <laughs> because uh, I, I don't know if that recollection um, is the reason. But but I have to think that it's part of it where they realized, oh, my gosh, you know, your parent could leave one day and not come home. Or maybe you don't have the traditional Thanksgiving because mom's out working on a bank robbery case. OK, so let's let's jump in here. I was going to wait because I'd, I'd read that you were in one shootout. Like, let's let's. Like, what's the, describe the circumstances. Where were you? What was your role? Okay. Well, um, gosh, one of the, the most dynamic periods in my life was when I was a violent crime supervisor in Seattle. And this goes back over 20 years ago. Uh, I was one of the first women to head up a violent crime squad. Um, again, I say the gender roles, they're still out there. Women are breaking barriers, but lots of times women would manage white collar crime squads or foreign counterintelligence or things that wouldn't be seen as perhaps as dangerous. 
but I had the opportunity to lead a, a task force and a squad of a lot of different detectives and FBI agents. And so we worked on uh, bank robberies in the Northwest. And for some reason, uh, that was really a hotbed for bank robberies. Now, most bank robbers are not too smart. They just need some money. They'll go in, there's a surveillance camera, you arrest them, they go to jail. But every now and then you'd get sophisticated bank robbers. And so uh, when I was the supervisor, we worked a bank robbery case that we nicknamed the Hollywood bank robbery, bank robber rather, because he would wear like this uh, elaborate makeup going in so that he, you know, you couldn't detect who he was. Uh, and so uh, we had a plan to basically be ready for what we thought would be the next bank robber, bank robbery, excuse me, because we would, we would sort of calculate how much um, money he needed to go from one bank robbery to the next. And so we we had a very proactive plan. And the bottom line is that the night before Thanksgiving, it was after working hours for the FBI, but it was about 5.15, he robbed a bank. Um, so we we uh, jumped in the cars, uh, followed a tracking device to find him and, and, and ended up in a, um, a shootout on a, a neighborhood street in Seattle. Who's we? I was with a couple of detectives from different police departments. So... Um, I guess uh, one of the things about that, I, I I was really kind of the radio person. I wasn't like the hero of the day, but the fact is, is that I was there. I was supervising the event. You were the operational commander. Got it. <laughs> yes, pretty much. And so, um, so the way it went down is that the there were three guys um, in this van that we had been following, and the shootout ensued. Uh, the number one guy, Hollywood, escaped that night, and the other two were shot and taken into custody. And then the next day, Thanksgiving, is when we got a tip for where Hollywood was. And he'd climbed up a tree. Uh, it was a very windy and rainy night, uh, the, the night before when the shootout took place. So when we had dogs come in, the dogs didn't detect him because they were confused by the scent because he had gone up a tree. And so the next day, he'd come down and he got into a trailer. And um, uh, the police were called about this odd person that was in the backyard. So the bottom line is that we responded that day on Thanksgiving. And after a standoff of a period of hours, he shot himself. Uh, and the whole episode ended that way. But but what going back to the connections to family is um, I'll just never forget the looks on my kids' faces. You know, when I got home from that, and then the next day, which was Thanksgiving, asking our next door neighbors if they would have our kids over for Thanksgiving dinner because mom and dad had to go to work. And so <laughs> that really left an indelible uh, image in my brain. Um, and, you know, I really wasn't sure how the kids would respond to that. So like I said, that none of them have chosen to go into law enforcement, but they, they definitely have a keen respect for me. And that's only grown over time. Um, and, uh, you know, they have gone on to do things in service as well. I mean, cause I think this is what it's all about is, is doing things to help other people. Okay. So let's rewind in time a little bit and get to the, you know, we've, we've jumped Sorry, ahead I, with I some really of it. Didn't. It's okay. No, it was great. It's okay. It's great. We, we like <laughs> yeah. to roll with it. I want to, I want to ask something. Um, so I, when I was digging into your bio, Mayor Glasser, I couldn't help thinking like, wow, what a glass breaking badass, you know, just along the way, just so many um, things that you, you accomplished and, and paved the way for, for other women and, and these non-traditional careers. But I just have to say, when I was in eighth grade, I saw Silence of the Lambs for the first time. 
And I, I, I was in, it was scary. It, it freaked me out. It was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. But I, I also was like, I want to do that job. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be Clarice. I thought I loved every bit of it. I loved the training part of the FBI. I loved what she had to do. And I'm just curious, like what led you to a career in the FBI? Well, first I want to talk about Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I was at FBI headquarters when that movie came out. It was a really big deal because usually the FBI didn't sort of support any kind of productions like that because it's kind of a crapshoot. You don't know how it's going to come out. But it was a really big deal. The FBI supported it. I knew a lot of the extras uh, in the movie. Awesome. And while they did take some liberties with what a trainee would do in a situation like that, what I really loved about Jodie Foster's performance is just how nervous she was at the end when she realized that she was the only one that was going to be able to sort of take this guy down and her hands are shaken and fear. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was so realistic yes. because I mean, you call her a badass character too, but I mean, behind that, you know, you've got to be, you've got to go do it because you're the only one, right? I mean, people that are heroic, that's really what happens is they're the only one. So yes. they have to go. Yes. And that's what I love. That's what I loved about her characterization is that she didn't stop uh, and she kept going, sort of working through the fear. So, um, so now I'm going to answer your question. I, um, again, I sort of go back to, to uh, my dad uh, sort of bringing us up to believe we could be whatever we wanted. And he was a professional man as a doctor. And uh, as I watched my older siblings make choices, they would choose professions. I have, you know, a couple of lawyers. I have an airline pilot. Um, I have another sister who's in the arts. She's a poet and she used to teach at a university. And I guess I really was kind of a thrill seeker. Um, you know, there's there's this piece that's about service, but there's also this piece about you as a person and wanting to have an interesting life. So what kind of what kind of early thrills were were your jam? Oh gosh. I mean it's it's been it's been many decades. I mean, there are a lot of ways to get thrills today that we didn't have back then. <laughs> but you know, I would I was I got trained to be an EMT. Um, I got my uh, pilot's license when I was 18. I tried every sport I could. We didn't have a track team at my high school. So I helped start the track team. You know, I was the captain of the cheerleaders. I mean, I was like, you know, I just was leaning into everything that I could. And that's really what was available to me at that time. So, uh, so I guess, I guess you would say I, I really, um, tried to push the envelope. So when I was making a career choice, I was thinking, okay, how can I do that? And so I kind of leaned toward the criminal justice arena. As opposed to social work, right? That was your other. It started with social work. And then that's where that personal piece sort of kicked in where I, I really wanted to do more than just be a social worker. I really liked sort of that law and order criminal justice piece. So I started out as a probation and parole officer. So I was a young college graduate doing that. And that's kind of where I learned to talk to people, um, interact with people, got familiar with the criminal justice system. And then I basically got recruited to the FBI because, as you pointed out, I was one of the first women agents. And so when the doors were opened, it was like, okay, we need to recruit some good women to do this. And so I was recruited. Um, and that's kind of where it started. I really didn't, I really didn't think about the FBI. Like there are a lot of men that will grow up and want to be an FBI agent because they went on a tour of the FBI building or they saw a show or whatever that has not been the typical experience of little girls. 
So it was a little bit different pathway for me, but I was definitely interested in law enforcement, criminal justice, and I was recruited. Hmm. All right. So did it meet your expectations? The train up, oh, yeah. the, the, the environment, what's the culture like? How do they assimilate you into to what it's like to be a special agent in the FBI? Well, I'm going to go back to, to the gender role piece. I mean, I was acutely aware that I was being recruited as a potential female agent, and uh, but I never spoke about gender at all. I mean, it was always about what are the qualifications? Do I meet them? Am I going to be ready on day one to do this? Because you have to take a physical fitness test the first day. I said, please don't let me be the last one in the run. Please don't let me be the weakest person in the class. So that sort of that sort of mindset feeds you into to really being prepared and ready um, when the time comes. So, um, I mean, every now and then I would be reminded that I was a female agent because somebody would come up and say, oh, yeah, so and so wanted to be in the FBI, but they hired a woman instead. Now, that's a ridiculous statement because we all had to meet the same requirements. Um, and all things being equal, they might select some women, but on the flip side, they might not select some women just because of some structural barriers that might exist. They weren't going to have a class of all women, for example. So the culture was definitely a, a macho type of culture. How, how much, uh, what, what was the sort of gun presence within, I mean, I've read this and that and have some buddies and it was like deep seated is what I, how I understood you know, it. It's, it. It's probably less of a gun culture or focus than you might think. Uh, because it's federal law enforcement. I mean, we are not out on patrol. I mean, the likelihood that FBI agents are going to get into firefights is much lower than for regular law enforcement officers. And the FBI always distinguishes what it does in terms of superiority of manpower and firepower and being prepared. So there's a difference between that and a car stop alongside like an interstate, right, where you you just sometimes you just don't have control of the situation. So with that said, I mean, definitely a third of our training focused on firearms proficiency. And you could flunk out if you were not proficient. But they spent a lot of time on the academic piece. They spent a lot of time on the physical fitness piece. And one of the things that uh, I thought was really great about the FBI, and this has been, you know, from the time I got hired still today, is that there's an expectation that you're going to maintain a level of fitness, not only to be good at your job, but because you represent um, a high standard in law enforcement. So smoking was definitely discouraged. We would have time to work out during the day, uh, you know, fitness, uh, physical fitness tests and medical exams. And so a real focus on being sort of a, a well-rounded fit individual. So the firearms piece was definitely there. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't have too much trouble with it, but uh, I, I will say that, you know, men, men and women both had difficulties with that. And when you're, when you're put in a situation and you're shooting from the 50 yard line and, and you can't, you know, you're not doing well, it's kind of hard. It's, it's a good test of, uh, of your will to see if you can gut through it and just do what you're trained to do and get better. Some people couldn't do it. And those people washed out. You, you mentioned that you were apprehensive going in, like if you would measure up. How did you go through? How did you rank um, when you actually went through the selection process? How did I rank? Um, I would say, okay, so we had about 30 people in my class and six women. And I would say 
that I was probably the top woman. Um, there was another one that was right there nipping at my heels, uh, but I pretty much beat her on everything. Uh, that was healthy for me. Uh, they didn't give you a prize for being the best woman, by the way. <laughs> and so um, with respect to the rest of the class, I would say I was middle of the pack, which was good for me. So just to sort of go back in time, I mean, we we had a lot of the same physical fitness requirements except for pull-ups. And so when people say, well, it's not the same for men and women, well, you know, to some degree that's true because at the time, I don't know how old you guys are, but at the time women were taught to believe that because of the, the our, our body distribution that women could not do men's pull-ups. <laughs> well, that's really not true. Not. <laughs> Um, it's, it's harder for women to do it, but if they learn to do it at an early age, um, you know, we had a different sort of hanging pull up, uh, that, that we did, um, for the women. And so I don't know if that's, I remember that in school as well as, as a kid, it was girls would hang and and how long would they get? And and boys would do pulls. Yeah. It was the presidential fitness test. Yeah. And I have these gorilla long arms, like pull-ups are just (laughs) really hard for me. So all the girls would have kicked my ass. Like what else is new? Well, here's the thing is how important (laughs) is being able to do a pull-up to the job. Um, but you know, if it is important to doing the job, you know, it, you know, Shouldn't the women have to do the same thing? I mean, maybe it's, can you lift your body weight one time? I don't know. I, I mean, that's probably a legal question. But um, but the rest of the training was pretty consistent uh, across the board for, for men and women. Did, did it meet your threshold for thrill-seeking? Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I've told, I've told people, when you, when you get sworn in to be an FBI agent, it's not just a job. I mean, it's an identity thing where you, it's for life. Um, and I carry that with me everywhere I go. And so, yes, it was. Um, and, you know, there are people that don't like the FBI, but, but, but most people do. Communists. They don't like the <laughs> FBI. <laughs> well, the FBI is going through a tough chapter right now. And most, most of my colleagues will acknowledge that, but, but we'll, we'll get through it. Um, time heals. But, you know, I, I, it, it's always lived up um, to, to what, I wanted and expected. Um, and, uh, I'm really grateful that I had the chance to do it. Yeah. It's it's been, it's been wonderful. So let's talk about a specific example, something like Iran Contra or what your role was like paint a picture for someone, because, you know, in whether it's you're in the CIA, you're in special forces or all these things, people see the, they see the final scene of silence of the lambs and they think it's all like that. And of course Mm -hmm. it's not right. Mm -hmm. And so, but you're, you're working on these really important, meaningful cases that, that really, really matter. And there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes. And I know Iran-Contra was one of your, your big cases that you worked on. So mm-hmm. is, is that a good one to kind of illustrate what it's like? Sure. Um, but, but first I want to say that, you know, life is a journey and we all start, it's like as a college professor trying to help kids get jobs after they graduate. And so when I, um, was assigned to the Iran-Contra investigation. I'd only been an agent for four years. So I was relatively green. And so that was uh, a big deal when they picked me to work on that. Because, I mean, I'd be going to the White House every day. And, you know, you want you want to make sure that you have people that are going to be really competent and um, well-received. So uh, that's one thing is that, you know, when we're starting out in our careers, you know, you you need to get a break early on, right? to prove yourself. So for me, I proved myself by being very organized. Um, uh, my paperwork was always impeccable. 
my interviews. I always gotten a lot of um, positive feedback uh, on my interviews being thorough, professional. They're never, they were never short. I just always found that you could just keep talking to somebody. The longer you talk to them, the more you would learn, especially if you're trying to gather evidence for something. So, um, and then the other thing was that I had worked on some cases that had uh, introduced me to some of the players in the, in and around the White House complex. So I kind of knew my way around there. For example, Oliver North. I mean, you know, I mean, my, my students didn't know who he was, but a really major character in the Iran-Contra investigation. I had interviewed him before uh, the Iran-Contra scandal erupted. And so, you know, it was easy for me to go over there and, and like work in his space, talk to the people around him. I didn't actually interview him in that case, but but I interviewed a lot of people around him. So Okay, so can you tell us what your role was, what the Iran-Contra was, just mm-hmm. top level, just in, okay. in case in case anybody out there, you know, doesn't know that all the details and, and then just sort of what, what you learned or, or what kind of the outcome was. And then we'll- sure. I should have, I should have started with that. Sorry. Um, so in my time of teaching at the local university here, I thought, Oh, I've got such a great background. And I'd mentioned the Iran Condor investigation. I'd have no idea what I was talking about. And so, and they never really did grasp sort of the um, significance of it because wasn't a course on Iran-Contra. So this, this dates back to 1986. And um, uh, our president was Ronald Reagan. And we had uh, a number of hostages that were being held. And so what was really at uh, issue was um, what was it was called arms for hostages, where arms were being sold in exchange for the release of hostages um, in Iran and then the tangent to that is that the funds that were received from these deals were going to fund the Nicaraguan Contras um, in Central America. And so there were all sorts of violations of the Arms Export Control Act and what well, something that was known as the Boland Amendment, which is whether you could, could fund sort of these external activities out of the country. And it was all at a very high level. Um, and uh, the allegations were that this was really being run out of the White House, which is not the way it's supposed to be. The National Security Council, which operates outside of the White House, and the National Security Director are under the executive branch. And these type of covert activities would naturally be run by, if they were to happen legally, lawfully, would be run under the CIA. So, I mean, there were some connections, but it was a very complicated. Um, matter. And I I worked for an independent council who investigated this. And we basically had three prongs that we investigated. And that was the White House connection, the CIA connection, and the State Department connection. And so I was named to be on the White House team because of, you know, again, my, my familiarity with the players over there. Um, and uh, I was the case agent on um, the case involving former National Security Director John Poindexter. So there were a number of convictions on that case. Um, there was there were a lot there was a lot of litigation on whether congressional testimony interfered in our ability to prosecute criminally. And then there were also pardons at the end of the day. So um, I did have I, the distinction of being one of the main witnesses in both the Oliver North trials and the John Poindexter trials because of um, my efforts in terms of evidence collection and interviews in that case. 
Wow. I spent about four years on that case. That's impressive. We we grew up, you know, as kids watching that on the news, you know, and hearing about that. So we we know a little bit about it from that standpoint. But that's that's fascinating to think that you were doing a lot of the work behind the scenes. Oh, and a lot of it was really it was it was not glamorous work uh, slogging through documents. I think I I was cleared to see everything that was you know in the U.S. government, and um, I shared a desk with a colleague, and we basically just like read document after document, interviews after interviews, and uh, I think uh, one one thing I just want to point out about that, and it just sort of goes to maybe why I was picked to to work on the case in the beginning, is that. You know, you want to be prepared and you want to put out an excellent product. And that's true, whether it's like in an office environment or whether it's, you know, out on the track or if it's, you know, rucking. Um, So for me, it was really interesting that some of the things that I did that I didn't think were all that significant became central to the trials. And so, you know, if you've got the date wrong on a document, you've got to, you know, you've got to say, well, that was a mistake but you don't want to ever do that again. So everything you do, you need to check it and double check it to make sure that it's as it's as excellent as possible. So it sounds like you just, you, you know, a lack of attention to detail will get you killed is kind of how I was trained in the military. And well, it, it's like know. this, this way of life, right? This pursuit of excellence, it's, it's the little stuff behind the scenes. And then it's the big stuff in the, as a witness or whatever the case may be, but you have to live the life. You have to live the life every day and, and, and do the work and That's do the work. Not glamorous. Right? And so was this a, I mean, was this really rewarding for you? Was that rewarding work? I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of digging up bodies, so to say, right? Like there's, it's not like this was a great moment for America, right? Like let's, let's take some of these people in, in leadership and figure out all the stuff they've done wrong and let's do it in public. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm coming off of a very partisan uh, election season, but when I was in the FBI, uh, we we were completely apolitical. We never discussed the political implications of the investigation or who we were investigating. We were looking at what are the elements of a crime and could you prove them or not prove them. So I can talk about this now because the election's over, but you know, I was a Republican. And I was investigating a Republican administration and I didn't think anything of it because that was my job, Yeah, you know, that you want to expose a crime if it, if it occurred or if it didn't move on. Right. I mean, I did not have any foregone conclusion with that. So fast forward, fast forward to today. It's like, you know, I, I can't even imagine doing that kind of an investigation right now um, because I, I probably would have been lambasted for having some agenda or something. And God forbid you do it with Facebook or text messages or whatever that you add to that. It, it was a different time back then. And it was also quite civil. I mean, the people that we investigated, I mean, you know, we, we just, they, we would invite them to come in to interview and they would, and it was pretty much connect the dots straightforward. But, um, I, and I, I did, I did find it exhilarating. Um, and I also, I have to say just, and maybe this is just the respect for the FBI, probably not for me because I was always treated with absolute utmost respect, whether I was talking to uh, a vice president or whether I was talking to some staff member, 
I was always treated really, really well by everybody that I came in contact with. And conversely, my other cases, not uh, public corruption, but I was always treated well by the bank robbers I uh, interrogated or <laughs> the child predators. I mean, I, I think about that experience and then I apply it to today where people that I don't even know are just like horrible on social media and going, I don't understand what's happened in our society that we talk to people the way that we do. I don't, I don't either. I, 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 I digress. No, but it's, it's, a, it's a point worth mentioning because like you said, the, the civil discourse, the ability for that has in a lot of ways evaporated. I felt the same way when I joined the agency. I made sure, like I was registered as an independent because I wanted to feel that I was going to do my job right no matter what that politics weren't going to be interfere because that's how that's how it felt like it should be we are civil servants you know we are we are serving the government and the people and the you know the constitution and trying to live by that and not by any sort of other ag political agenda that's going to change out you know in the next 2 to 4 years or whatever so right. yeah I, I i hear you on that and i something that we talk about a lot at go ruck and in this podcast is you know, the need to actually sit down with people and be face to face. And, and even if there's someone that you think you should be enemies with, you know, on paper, but it, it's a little bit harder to dehumanize them when they're in front of you, when you see right. them in your neighborhood, when you, you know, see that they also have a life and they, they, you have a lot more in common than you have uh, differences. I agree. Okay. So we, let's talk some of the community building stuff when we get to your time as mayor real quick. Cause I'm, the FBI was one of the places I applied to after 9-11. I applied to the CIA, the FBI, and then the Marines, and eventually ended up in the army. Right. Um, but there, there was that same kind of, it is, you want to serve. You also want, there, there's, there's some, I want some adrenaline in my life, something, right? So describe the shift that happened on and, and because of 9-11 at the FBI with regards to, to the global war on terror? Okay, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm gonna go back a little, little bit before that and say that um, just the threat of terrorism, whether it was domestic or international, had become an increasing concern uh, in our country and in the FBI. And uh, I was stationed in Seattle when the Oklahoma City Federal Building was bombed by Timothy McVeigh. And that was um, a life-changing event professionally for me, just because of how that could happen in our country. Um, and that being the biggest up until then event involving terrorism. So I have that sort of um, as, as the backdrop. And then uh, from Seattle, um, you know, my husband and I and our family moved to Jacksonville. And so I was working on a drug squad uh, and uh, all of uh, the agents were out of the office getting training and I was the duty agent. And so um, somebody came to me and said, oh my gosh, you know, the World Trade Center has been bombed. And so everybody that was at, still in the office got, got around the TV and was watching as everything unfolded, just like America was. So I don't think we were FBI personnel then. We were just sort of reacting to what we were seeing happening with our country under attack. And so that took, you know, that was that was probably, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how many hours it took for it to settle in. The training was still going on for everybody else. They kept going. And then maybe a couple hours later, they said, OK, we got to cancel this. Everybody back to work. 
And then so really for the next six weeks, we were all working 24-7 on leads related to 9-11. Which there were some close to home, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, there was a there was there was a definitely a strong nexus to some of the terrorists to Jacksonville, definitely to Florida. And uh so after that happened, um really the shift, and this came down from the president, President Bush at the time, we shifted from being a reactive organization to terrorism threats, to being proactive. And people will probably be debating this historically in terms of whether that that line got moved too far in terms of, you know, individual liberties versus national security. But that that was really all above our pay grade, right? <laughs> if you give us the tools, we're gonna we're gonna exercise them. If you don't like it, Congress, change the law or have meaningful oversight. So you know, I don't buy into the fact that the FBI is out there violating people's rights, because if you give us the tools and tell us you want us to prevent terrorism, that's what we're going to do until you change the laws. Anyway, that's, to, that's to a certain reason. extent, it's similar to if you're a soldier, it's apolitical, right? Like, you know, President Bush, by his orders, I went to Iraq. I signed up for Afghanistan. It doesn't matter, right? Like you're doing the job. There, There is a system in place to, right. to change the nature of that job. But the people have to actually, they have to actually voice their opinions. They have to vote. They have to do those right. kinds of things. But you you can't like be uh, making the policy up as you go when you're on the front line. No. So anyway, um, I, I mean, I, I think that's important to point out. Um, there, are me- there are mechanisms to blow the whistle or, or to um, address what your concerns are, but uh, our system won't function if, if we don't abide by the laws and the policies and orders. Anyway, so one of the things, it's, it's sort of similar to the Iran-Contra investigation, is that um, I was uh, asked to stand up the North Florida Joint Terrorism Task Force, and I became the first coordinator of that task force after 9-11. And um, it was, uh, well, most of it was not glamorous, I'll just say that. Um, these investigations are not glamorous. You're not arresting people every day. Um, lots of paperwork. And with the shift of uh, being reactive to being proactive, our headquarters in Washington, D.C. would get involved in pretty much everything. So everything was being investigated by committee up and down the chain. And interestingly, you know, we, we, we had lots of agencies that were co-located with us here in Jacksonville working on the task force. Uh, this was the first time I'd had a, a CIA agent uh, on a task force physically present with us. It was not smooth. <laughs> you mean there is some territory battles? <laughs> the, way that, the way that we go about uh, uh, running intelligence investigations were completely opposite. Yeah. So if we if we got some bit of information at the ground level, we would vet it all the way up before it would get to the top of the chain. But our counterpart would go into a little skiff, a little room. It was like a closet that had been converted. And he'd send it straight to the National Security Director. Oh, yeah. So what would happen is that information would flow down from the CIA and from the FBI to be flowing up and somewhere in the middle it met. And sometimes it didn't sound like the same information. Yeah. And so I saw a problem with that. Yeah. But I mean, but it was it was good. I mean, it was helpful to have everybody in the same space because we had different tools um, to have local detectives there who could report on people that were seen looking at 
the electric towers, like it, across from Blen Island, you remember before those were uh, those mm-hmm. were um, imploded? Yes. You know, everybody thought those were nuclear, <laughs> it was a nuclear plant. And so we would get tips from people that were seen like that didn't look like they fit in or somebody said this at the airport. So we got a lot of information in the context of that task force. And, but still, it was there was a lot of it that was a, was a real grind. So I did that for um, five years. And then um, shortly before I retired, I asked if I could do an overseas assignment. So I was stationed in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for a short time. And that was really also eye-opening because it showed you sort of, you know, here in Jacksonville in our very comfortable environment, relatively safe. Yes, there are threats, but, you know, you didn't have to be concerned that if you told JSO something, they'd go out and like raid their house and there'd be a shootout and people would be dead. I mean, if you told the Saudi officials some of the information that we were getting, you had no control over what they did uh, in a foreign country. And so that was really eye-opening and it was a great experience. Were you in the embassy there? Were you in RSO? Yes, I was. Awesome. I didn't work domestically with the agency, but overseas, it was much different. Like you said, the information flow, we we had some run-ins too because of those same sort of collection for in, in reporting differences. Yeah. But you know what I always thought of and and what some of my my former colleagues that have actually you know after spending a lot of time overseas they come back home and join the FBI because that's the real fight at home is with the FBI we think and you know the the agency is involved and and very active in some places but it's also I've always viewed it as sort of we defer you know home turf FBI and overseas you know uh, the agency has primacy that's right I mean primarily when I was in Riyadh, it was really a liaison role. We were passing information. And so uh, the rules were pretty clear about what we could and could not do. And similarly, for the agency in the U.S., it was the same way. Okay. So after 24 years, you, you got out in 2006. What was the transition like? I know you you jumped into a big ride across America mm-hmm. and did some other stuff, but we'll, we've talked a lot with a lot of our people who come on the show about the transition, because it's usually a military transition or something like that. And for us, all of us, it was kind of hard. All right. Well, let's, let's go back again to the gender roles. I mean, I did, I had, I had four children and I also had two stepchildren. Uh, I had a storied career in the FBI. Uh, in the FBI, you're basically on call 24 seven. And so uh, you, you get paid for a certain amount of that. But beyond that, it's like, you just have to be there. Um, and the phone rings at three o'clock in the morning and you go. The other thing is you really couldn't do any second jobs in the FBI. You couldn't be political because of the Hatch Act, which which prohibits federal employees from engaging in political activity. So I knew I wanted to re- retire on the front end of my retirement window. And so I was eligible to retire um, when I hit my 50th birthday. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, it was not because I was having a bad time or anything. I just really wanted to do other things. And so I retired basically on my 50th birthday. It, it's kind of funny because maybe a few months before that happened, we really didn't have email access, ready access. You know, we still use beepers and things like that. But I remember being on one of the sort of the common in the common area at the FBI where the computer was and just looking up like I thought it'd be cool to to, to ride my bike across the country. And so I just happened upon this this opportunity through the American Lung Association to do that. And there really weren't that many opportunities like that back then. I don't know what there are now, but 
But because my mother died of uh, lung, I mean, smoking related lung cancer, it's just like a bell went off in my head that, you know, I can do this in a somewhat structured environment and I can do it uh, for a cause that I believe in. And so that's kind of when the plan went into place. So the day I retired, I started training for that cross country ride and sort of like my other experiences, I thought I needed to be as prepared as possible. This one was a little bit different because, you know, I didn't have mountains to train on. Um, it was pretty much I would hit the bridges and that would be my hills. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I was as ready as I, I would like to be by my own standards, but I was ready enough. That was that was another takeaway is that sometimes you don't have to be as ready as you think you are because you can just not fake it till you make it, but you can you can just push through it. And so that's what I did. I, I, I trained enough and I wasn't injured. And then I did exactly what they told me to. It was a very small group and it was pretty much an entire outdoor experience where we camped out at night. Um, and I scattered my mother's ashes across country as I went. And it was a, just a fabulous way to transition into my next life because it totally shifted my orientation from looking at the whole world to sort of looking at like what was right in front of my face. So, I mean, if you look at a landscape and you see how beautiful it is, but then you zoom in and you see this flower here, or you see like a groundhog there. I mean, it totally shifted how I kind of viewed the world around me. And so I really focused locally. I mean, that's what I do now is I try to make the biggest impact I can in the world that I inhabit. Uh, I'm not worrying about you know, terrorist threats over in uh, Saudi Arabia. I'm thinking about what's happening here in Atlantic Beach and what can I do? And that actually makes me happy. I don't feel like I've got the weight of the world on my shoulder because I'm focused on what I'm doing right here, right now. So that, that, was, that was a big transition for me is looking at the detail of what was right in front of me. Gosh, that's really great. <laughs> that's a great way to transition, I think. And, and to like you said, I think it's overwhelming going from a career where you're looking at all threats, you know, and then seeing how that is going to affect and, and thinking about that all the time and knowing a lot. And then to be able to go and focus and see, I mean, we're, we're Atlantic Beach residents. We, we see the change that you've, you focused on you as mayor have, have happened, made happen. And that's really important too. They're both important. I mean, you can, you can probably see change done locally even faster, right? You can see the effect you have. Well, you can. And then you also have the experiences. I got a letter yesterday from a local pastor who said that I stopped and talked to his grandchild in an event like two years ago. And I took pictures with him and how much that mattered to his grandson. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, those little things do count. So again, the power of the details is is really big in my life. My world used to be so big. And it really, especially now in COVID times, it's really small. But there's a lot of, I mean, I, I'm gratified by that. But the other point I want to make about my transition is that, and you probably know people that have done this, where you have like a cleansing experience. You know, you don't know exactly where you're going to come out on the end of it. But, you know, that to me was a cleansing experience. I didn't know what the impact was going to be on my life until I actually, you know, traveled the journey. So, 
you probably have that with the people that you work with all the time because of, I mean, it, I, I can only imagine. I'm in such awe of the, the people that, that participate um, in your programs. I mean, I, I wish I was younger. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to do it now. I mean, I'm in awe of that, but they, they probably will do the 12 miler with you next year. You got you that in do you. It. You could do it. I don't want to be last. Remember that? <laughs> we'll be on a team. That's you can all let, you know what? You will finish just before me. <laughs> no, you slow down for me. I, I, that's still, that is still like my, my thing. I do not want to be last and I would be last, but, but I'm sure that those people that participate have that kind of cleansing experience where it, you know, I mean, you just get this clarity. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's the endorphins. I don't know, but, but it's amazing. So after, throughout this transition, was there, what about the personal life? Like what, what shifted for you from a 24 seven job to being closer to home and, you know. And she was known as agent mom, right? That was right. your nickname. And because you were probably one of the few agents who had a lot of children, right? I, I, you know what? I don't know anybody that had, now I, I'm just saying with my four biological children, I think those by itself may be a record, but certainly with the two stepkids, because they weren't grown, they were little. And on top of that, your husband was a Navy SEAL, correct? It's true. I mean, it's how true. did you make so, that work? I mean, who, who brought who to Jacksonville? Well, I think it's a me. He's always <laughs> been on my coattails. <laughs> I got Love the job it. in Seattle. He followed me to Seattle and then Good he man. followed me to Jacksonville. So his resume may be really impressive, but there's something about like the stability and the organization that I offer that's not too sexy that gets me the jobs. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I just think it's, um, you know, we, we only had like seven dates before we married, we got married because we weren't in the same city. So we either decided we were going to get married or we were going to break up. And so there was an act of faith with that. Um, but it, it's been an interesting, um, an interesting journey with my husband because our personalities, um, are, are the way we approach work is very different. Um, I make a joke that between the two of us, we were a damn good FBI agent um, <laughs> because, you know, I would I would have everything, all the, the the T's crossed and the I's dotted and he'd be the guy you wanted to go through the front door. I'd go behind him, but he definitely was the one in, in front. But he had a, an uncanny ability to not sweat the small stuff. And so with our kids, we did have help. Um, there was that nanny phase of our lives where, you know. You're supposed to be at work at 8.15, but he'd just say, nah, I'm going to work a night shift tonight. Uh, and it was like, you know, I don't care what the supervisor says about it. That's just what I'm going to do. And he just, he had the ability to do that. I couldn't do that. I'm too much of a rule follower, uh, even if it's not a, an important rule. And so somehow we managed to, to, to do that together so that, you know, we had bases covered at home. Uh, and of course, it got easier as they got older. Um, I honestly, I don't know how we did it, except that we did. That's awesome. Um, well, it sounds like you two complement each other really well. Well, we do and we don't. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. Again, we, we jumped off the cliff together and we, we've made a life together and it's, it's worked out uh, really well. Um, but uh, we also don't talk about things that, that we disagree about. <laughs> well, you're talking to a couple who have been married, divorced, and remarried. So we get it. <laughs> really? Yes. Not to each other. Yes, to each other. Oh, that was the punchline. <laughs> oh so we get it. It, it. You know, not exactly the same, but similar, you know, both yeah. career oriented and 
That's another podcast <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, this is about you. So, but I was, I was just fascinated, like how you did this as a mom and as a wife and you well, did it. I, you know, so some of it for me with age, I had to let some stuff go. I had to let some stuff go. Uh, and, um, you know, and then I had, I had advice from people, uh, who are very wise that said, you know, you do this, your kids are going to hate you. Right. Like what? Uh, if you hold grudges, you don't want to fight in front of your kids. So, you know, I just, I, I, I really, I don't hold grudges. Uh, I really don't look back, um, at anything and, you know, I forgive a lot of stuff and my kids, they're the sort of the filter for all of that. They see all of that. They they know that about me. My kids probably thought I was um, wrong about some things, and they've come around. They understand why I've done things. I think becoming a mother for them will be you know be really interesting because you know when you when you have kids, you understand your mother better. Yes. Yeah. My my husband is larger than life. He's um he's a great man. I didn't know what we were going to talk about today, so I was thinking about my dissertation. And my studies in leadership, and uh, you know, he's he comes from that ilk where his mother did everything for him, uh, served him, and continues to do that. But he he would be the he's that guy that everybody looks at and is in awe of. He's that great man. He's that great leader. I'm not that kind of leader. We have totally different leadership styles, um, and we complement each other because again, I don't hold any grudges, and and actually neither does he. It's interesting. You got it's work, man. It is work. <laughs> it is. Yes. And so this dissertation was what you did to become a professor, correct? It was on females and, and leadership right. roles. Right. What was your big takeaway from that? My big takeaway is that it, it, the best women leaders are really transformational leaders. They have the ability, and this is not just limited to women, but that they are uh, the best women leaders are very team oriented, seeing people's potentials and having them be able to to fulfill those roles that they can, very empowering for people. And um, it's not about really a quid pro quo. It's really about what is the goal. So sometimes for men, it's really about, well, what's what's in it for me? Um, and uh, that's not to say that's true across the board. But um, one of the other things that I found is that women do not uh, have the mentorship that uh, really helps them to succeed as much as they could in a male-oriented environment. Um, you might get that in a, in a, like, I don't know, in a medical field or teaching field or something. But I know for me, I mean, I, I should have, I should have some adult mentors besides my family. And I, I really, I really don't. I've been, I've basically done a lot of this on my own. So I'm trying to correct that with my daughters and the uh, competent people, not just, not just women that I'm around because, you know, we all need somebody to support you unconditionally. So Mentorship's another thing. Um, just the management of multiple roles is is a thing for women. It, it's increasingly so for men, but but more for women um, with with children. I mean, you know, who's the one in your household that knows your teachers, you know, your kids' teachers' names, when the events are, you know, buying the birthday presents, all, all that stuff. I mean, if you're not doing that 50-50, then you are really having a more difficult time as a woman managing those multiple roles. So some things don't really change that way. I'm not saying that the both parties aren't totally committed, but, you know, how do you sort of separate out the workload in your household? Uh, and if you're doing most of it, then you're having more juggling to do. 
that, those are some of the takeaways. Occupational pride was another really big thing. Women derive a great deal of pride from having a successful uh, occupation. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's being a mom, but maybe that's being in the agency. Maybe it's being a businesswoman or a mayor. Yeah. Um, so. so I read this advice that you had to, to women interested in a political career. You said, get involved in civic activities, local government, work on a campaign and learn what it's all about. I waited too long to really start using my voice as a woman leader. And I don't think other women need to wait as long as I did. Well, that goes to that piece about being prepared. I've always succeeded by being like the most prepared, right? But I, I think maybe I my standard was almost too high. I mean, I didn't need to wait that long. So if you'd told me 10 years ago that I would be in politics, I would have said, you know, that's just not possible. It's only because of timing and uh, you know some things that I observed that I decided to get involved. And I think I could have had... Uh, a very successful political career. If maybe I'd started doing it after I retired from the FBI, but I, I just didn't do it. And so I would really encourage people if they're interested to get close to people that are, that are doing it and then see if it's something that, you know, you really do want to pursue. I, I mean, this is kind of my last rodeo. I've got other things that I want to do after, after I'm the mayor, but they're not going to be nine to five things. Like what? So I'm going to, I'm going to do some writing, mm -hmm. but I, it's not going to be a nine to five thing. And it's certainly not going to be something where every meeting is recorded publicly with no do-overs. <laughs> um, but I mean, while I don't have a problem with that, it's just going to be, it's just going to take a different shape uh, in the next, in the next uh, chapter. But, but yeah, don't, don't wait too long. I mean, you know, my body's not as, uh, as strong as it used to be. I mean, you know, it's like, I just, um, there's a butt coming. There's a butt. <laughs> but. You know, don't, don't wait. I mean, I wish that I was my best self right now as the mayor, because it's so public. And, uh, I, I just, I just, I wish I'd started a little sooner. Well, it's hard when you're kicking ass in other places around the world. So, you know, thank you for all you've done for our, <laughs> our country and keeping us safe and, 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 and taking care of us in Atlantic beach. I know that you do a lot on the back end. There's a lot of thankless work that goes on with you and the team to make sure that, you know, hurricanes aren't going to damage our city and that we have safe streets and, and sidewalks for our kids and a whole lot of other things. Those things matter. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I do, I do feel like it is about public service and not politics. It should be. Uh, and it's easier to say that in a, in, in a local setting where you do know people and there's not like a trade-off or a transaction involved in making this decision or that decision. But it's a, it, this is a perfect job for me. We are lucky to have you. So, so final question is what, what kind of advice would you give your, your children, your grandchildren, irrespective of, of politics, like removing that, like how to lead a life worth, worth living, right? Like how to lead something of meaning. And, and Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with being surrounded by people that love you and that you love. And so that's sort of the private piece we don't talk about when we go to the job, right? But, but, but about happiness and being well-rounded. And, um, you know, my kids are pretty well-rounded. Uh, and then pursuing something that you really love, not, not uh, like if you want to be an FBI agent, not becoming a CPA and hating every minute of it because you think you have to be a CPA to be in the FBI. You can find a path to that career without doing something you don't like. Do something that you love and do it really well. Find people that you trust and that you and you love. And then also maybe don't like 
get ahead of yourself. I think for my kids, you know, when your mother's a mayor and your father's a former Navy SEAL, it's easy to think, ah, I, I I'll never measure up to that. But I didn't start there. I started out of college, getting a shot with a big case and doing a really good job at it. And so I didn't get ahead of myself thinking, oh, I'm going to be the mayor one day. Oh, I, no, not at all. Just to not compare yourself too much to the experiences of other people, but take advantage of every opportunity. And then again, going back to the, the gender piece is, you know, don't wait. You, you know, you, you'll never be, you never be ready enough. So, so start using your voice now. Be civil and polite. Don't be an asshole. Um, you know, uh, be kind to people, uh, know that there's evil out there, but, but, you know, trying to push through that to be positive on the other end. I mean, those are kind of the things and talk to people. I mean, I talk to my kids. I'm really proud of my daughters, uh, and my son. They're just nice people. I mean, that's, that's part of it is raising nice people. It sounds a little hokey, but it's true. No, it's true. And, and I know most of your children and, and they reflect well upon which, what you and your husband have done. They're, they're nice people. Well, ma'am, thank you so much for your time today and for your, your storied career of service. And uh... Can I say one more thing? Yes, ma'am. Okay. This is my message to young people because I do really have a, a soft heart for kids in our community is that don't make stupid mistakes. This is what I tell my kids. Don't make stupid mistakes <laughs> because those you will, you will live with potentially forever, whether it's um, uh, driving when you're drunk, whether it's drug use, whether it's something on social media. I have seen way too many people get tripped up on things like that. And there's so many more traps for that with young people now. I mean, that's probably the practical advice. I've given you sort of the feel-good stuff, but that's the practical advice. Well, it's um, a pressure cooker for kids. I mean, they're they're under a microscope. All Everyone's got a camera everywhere all the time. How are you supposed to grow if you can't make any mistakes? That's and true. so you've got to make some, just don't make like the worst ones. Yeah, that's <laughs> correct. You got you to gotta make smart choices there. So yeah. anyway, sorry, I had to throw that in. No, it's, <laughs> it's, that's meaningful. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for your time w to be continued offline. You know, we'll go for a bike ride or something. Can I be seen on my electric bike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just disengage the battery. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll pedal. It's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. This was really fun. You guys are wonderful. I'm so glad you live in Atlantic Beach. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Appreciate your time. We will see you guys around. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Well. Mayor Glasser has left the building, right? The, the the virtual building. The virtual building. Yeah, she's actually about three miles north right now. But you know, man, she was a the she was a glass breaking badass. You know, I knew she was cool, but I you know you dig in on someone's life and you just don't know like how great they and how many things they've done. So sometimes this is one of those instances where I wish that this podcast were four hours. Yeah, I wish that were kind of more. It's, it's a little too much time to ask for people. It's a lot of time. I mean, how many people will actually listen to it, but I'm going to, I've got a lot more questions to talk to her about. Cause I just, th there's a lot of people out there that have done these great things and the great things are more than just the one moment here and the one moment there. It's, it's a career. And what you'll find, whether it's Mayor Glasser or whether it's rich or something is there's lots of space in between, but there was a commitment and they kept going in their in their chosen careers, their chosen professions, and then they would reinvent themselves. And you know, it, it's almost as if 
things would follow them, but I don't think it's exactly like that. It's like you make your own luck a little bit. Yeah. She, she seems like she made a lot of her own luck and I mean, obviously had supportive parents and went to a great, got into a great college, Duke University, and then, you know, got recruited to the FBI. Uh, she was like in the, you know, first 500 female agents, you know, that's something that's a, that's, that's a real number. Cause that's a big place. But the part that she said about not really having a ton of mentors and that's caused her to want to be more of a mentor to younger people, especially women it is interesting, right? Because it, like you're saying, it does shape you. Yeah. So the, the other part of this is I know that, you know, beating up on America and feeling like we're all of a sudden this, this terrible country and we're so divided and all this stuff like that's super in vogue right now. And, you know, not awesome, frankly, not awesome. What I hear in, in her story is think about the evolution of America throughout her lifetime and how much change has actually happened. It's not to say more shouldn't. It's just to say, look, we have to say sometimes these processes work. Like she, she spoke of, well, if you don't want the FBI going after terrorists, then, then change it. Right. But that has to, people have to get involved. And, and so, you know, this isn't sort of Saudi Arabia here in America, right? It, it's not like, oh, women are, you know, you can't drive and, and you're, you're just a second class citizen, right? It's, it's not that. And yet there were a lot more components of that a long time ago. I mean, think about the loss of diversity within the FBI, if all you can have is, is men, right? I mean, you're losing so much in kind of interview skills alone, or just, you know, the way that women's minds work is a little bit different. And you're losing that diversity, which is absolutely strength for teams, organizations, all of it. And it, it came to fruition. She had longer, different style interviews that produced a different result. And was very, you know, complimentary and, and ended up being, in, in a lot of cases, the, the interviews that really made a difference. And it's not to say this breaks down purely on male, female no. gender lines. It's just to say that, look, there is legitimate diversity when you have people who are young and old, male and female, black and white, and whatever color your skin is, people grow up differently and have different ways of, of looking at the world, dealing with others, different vantage points. And when you're able to harness that diversity, like America does when we're at our best, this great melting pot that we are, then those institutions thrive. And, and it's great to hear, to take a step back from this, this time and place that we're in right now, toxic political climate, you know, just election season, COVID, all this stuff and say, look, there has been a lot of good that's happened. T talking about this always reminds me of discussions I had with Egyptian diplomats. And that it was, it was a, a real eye-opener for me because they would, you know, here you have Egypt whose history goes back, you know, their history is long. They, they, see, they see our museums of stuff dating back to the 15 and 1600s and they laugh. <laughs> they, they, they say, you guys are babies, you know? And, but something that they'd always say is United, the United States of America is the greatest experiment that the world has ever seen. And I'd ask them to, to talk to me more about that. And they'd say, look, you had founding fathers and, and you know, a constitution established that actually put life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at the core 
of its values and, you know, setting up a system that when it works together, when it works well, attracts people from all over the world to want to come there. And, and you just, you have to, as an adult sometimes, and we, we, we get the indoctrination and, you know, we learn about this stuff in our, in our history classes as kids. But when you, when you get outside of the United States and you actually think about that for a second, it's pretty remarkable. You don't see that anywhere else. And, and for all the, the problems that, you know, all countries and uh, face, uh, you know, it's something that I'm probably most proud of. Yeah, so it's, there's a lot of strength in the, in the diversity. And at the core of that, though, there are people who are serving. And it doesn't always have to be in uniform. It doesn't always have to be a prescribed way. You can be a community servant as well, right? Like be a, do something good close to home. You don't have to get paid to do it. You don't, I mean, there are so many different ways to serve. You don't have to quit your job. If you hate your job, maybe you should think about it, right? But you don't have to, to make these radical changes in life. You can just sort of get going. It's kind of what she was getting at. Like, just get going with the things that are, that are good. Sure. And I also liked the, when she mentioned that, you know, she was a Republican investigating a Republican administration during the you know, Iran-Contra um, affair. And that's something that I too don't like to live in the past and, and be too nostalgic on certain things. But, you know, this day and age, I am a little nostalgic for that sort of, we're all on the same team at the end of the day. Well, Ronald Reagan was a president and Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. And, you know, everybody liked Ronald Reagan, right, as a person. And he would invite Tip O'Neill to come over for drinks at the White House. And he's like, okay, it's five o'clock. You know, the politics of the day are, are over. Let's, let's talk. Civil and discourse. Civil discourse. And how much of that is there going on? There's not enough. So here's the thing, though. We have the ability to reward people that lead that way of life with civil discourse. Or we can choose not to, we as a people. And so the onus is on us. It's not just like we, we get the people we deserve sometimes. Like you and I, we got the kids we deserve, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're chaos. Yes. He. And we choose. That's the beauty of the framework. We choose who's in power and who's not. So the more active we are and we, we promote an active life here. It, it can sometimes feel a little helpless sometimes. You can sometimes feel like you are being acted upon instead of an actor in your life. I get that. Like that, there are things that happen in your life that are can be overwhelming and that you just don't understand where the foothold is. That being said, I personally can say that I have found footholds best when I talk to other people, when I share this sort of doubts or oh, I'm, you know, this is upsetting me. I don't know what to do with it. But, you know, talking to other and, and others and trying to figure that out. And this is where, you know, Mayor Glasser talked about, you know, this is where the mentorship comes in. And I, and, and what she said, you, like, you don't have to have done, you know, all these great things to, to become a mentor. You know, like you can start to, as, as, as much as you can jump into your career, you can also jump into leadership at, at an earlier stage than you might think you can. Yeah. I mean, Marcus Aurelius was like, don't talk about what a good man is, be one. And it's it, it just like this call to action. We all on some level think, oh, I got to do this in order to do that. And then I'll be ready. And it's like this, this promotion of a culture of checking boxes and stuff. And sometimes you just got to go do the stuff that you love and. Or, or be a little, a little fearlessly ignorant about it. Like, you know, I've been guilty of that on numerous occasions where I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then I get there and I'm like, oh, 
whoa, I didn't realize what I was getting into, but now that I'm here, I better, I better like work hard. Yeah. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our, our time with Mayor Glasser and a little bit of our opinions about how to be more awesome in America right now. Like her. She's <laughs> like her, awesome. right? I mean, so yeah. you, you listen, it's like, I watch the news and I get depressed. I go to a go rock event or I talk to people on this podcast or stay in those kinds of circles. And I get really optimistic and energized again, because there's just this, there's this underpinning and this foundation that's really, really strong. And we're living in a difficult and challenging time, but be, that, that will not endure, right? You know, tough times don't last, last tough people do that type of thing. And, and we're a really tough and resilient nation. And, and that's because our people, the nation is not an abstract thing. It's America is, is populated by Americans, right? And we are a resilient people and we're going to be fine. Jason, don't lie. You don't watch the news. You read the news. I do. I gave up the news. <laughs> I literally, so talk about a little life hack. I, I just, if, if someone is on the TV, they are able to scream at you, right? They're able to do all this kind of charlatan charade stuff. And, and it's just, you know, and then you've got them screaming and then you've got, you know, the, the, the news bar at the bottom. And then you've got a, a, a shorter news bar with a, you know, a flashing light on it. Look here, look here. It's exhausting. And so what I've found is that take a break from that, remove yourself from that emotional suck. Or the scrolling, yeah. the doom scroll. Yeah. Till infinity. And so look, I, I believe I want to be an educated and informed citizen, but I don't want to get my news like that. So I, I read, try to stay informed, do, do what you can that's best for you. But there's some universal stuff, right? I mean, if you feel really stressed out about your life, then change something. It's probably not more of what you're doing now. And, and, and start to say, hey, what's stressing me out? Oh, is actually watching the news will actually just completely stress me out, right? And I just, I don't enjoy that at all. And so- you know, make that change. There, there's other changes that we can make in our life. If, if you don't get outside enough, if you're just living inside and, and not doing anything outside or to be active, look, I don't care about the virus in this regard, right? It is safe for you to go outside of your house or your apartment and put a rucksack on and go breathe some, breathe some fresh air and get some vitamin sunshine. That's really good for you. If it's cold outside, so what? go outside. It's going to be good for you. You'll feel better when you get back. Like it's the only way to kind of clear my head. Well, like what Mira Glasser said, you know, this was hearkening back to her transition from the FBI. She went from feeling like the weight of the world was on her shoulders, huge, you know, 10,000 foot view to focusing on what was in front of her. And that's, that's a really great way you know, as a, as a runner, I can tell you when you got to get up a, a tall hill, you, you just got to look right in front of you. And, and that's a really great way to get through it. Thanks so much for listening to Glorious Professionals. We appreciate your listenership. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about it. We'll catch you next time.